Matthew chapter 4. So we're going to read together. Matthew 4, 1 to 11. We've been studying Matthew now for a number of months. It's become customary for us to be in this book. We're seeing Matthew display Jesus. He's been uh, introduced. He's been in many ways inaugurated. Last week at the end of chapter 3, we saw that heaven itself opened to put a stamp of approval and blessing upon this son. The king has arrived. And what we're going to be anticipating now is to see the way that the king establishes his kingdom. What kind of kingdom is it going to be? So let me read the first 11 verses of Matthew 4, and then we'll consider it together. It says this in the fourth chapter of Matthew. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. I always want to get that right. Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pause just for a moment. Good Father, giver of all good gifts, give us your spirit now. Comfort, convict. Give us courage to not only see, but to walk according to your word. And in all of our walking, make us into the image, one degree after another, into the image of your Son. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Every time I read this passage, I think of 1999. In the summer of 1999, I spent a good chunk of time with a church planting team in central Albania in a very small, remote town. And I don't know what you think of when I say Albania. Maybe, you know, I don't, like an old joke somebody said, forget all that you know about, you know, whatever it is. So forget all you know about Albania. Maybe you just think to yourself, I didn't know anything. <laughs> but I'll tell you this, in the late 90s, Albania was not a pleasant place to be. It was struggling after overthrowing a very corrupt dictatorship. It was poor, entrenched in poverty beyond belief. It was lawless, a very, very difficult place, and nonetheless, God was working. There were missionaries that were coming in and living there and committing their lives there in a place that was previously closed. So I was there in the summer of 1999 with a small group of Christians that had begun forming, people coming to Christ. 
And I recall that moment in time because it was there on a street in the middle of Balsh, Albania, that I was walking up the road in the midst of a crowd and I began hearing the word for American and then mixed in some other Albanian choice words, things that weren't as... And I turned back and I saw a man maybe 100 yards down the road from me making his way through a crowd, yelling and screaming as loud as he could and pointing up at me. And he's made his way up the road. He came up and he bumped into my chest. There's a crowd forming around us and he's continuing to scream and he's continuing to be all fomented. Like it seemed to me like he had spittle of mouth. And all he kept saying is, if, if you're a Christian, prove it. If your God is true, prove it. And right behind us was a four-story building. And he keeps pointing up and he's saying, if you're a Christian and if God is true, if your God is true, let's go up and throw ourselves off. And whoever lives will be proven to be true. And he says, Allah is God, not yours. Let's go prove it. And he keeps pointing to the building and saying we should jump. And in that moment, I did not have the wherewithal to say, be gone, Satan, or, or you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I was thinking of this passage, but I was terrified, and I was thinking, be gone, Lance. And I noped out of that situation very fast. I said, no, thank you. This isn't the kind of thing that we should be doing. That's not how we prove that God is faithful. And I made my way through the crowd and left the situation with the guy still yelling and mocking. And I think of that passage, of course, because I don't know of any other in Scripture that's as, as pointed or in the same kind of situation of, let's test God, oh, also by throwing ourselves off a high point to the point of death. But this passage in Matthew chapter 4 shows us that Jesus had already walked a similar path. He had been in a place of challenge, a place of temptation, and proven himself to be utterly and completely righteous. That's the theme of Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11. And what we're going to do as we look at this passage together, as we consider this text so we're going to observe some facts about it to make sure we get the contours of it very well. And then we're going to come back and I'm going to talk about the nature of this testing of Jesus. Then I'm going to offer a couple of ideas what I believe Matthew would give us as the meaning of this test. So first, the nature of it. How does it work? Second, the meaning of it. And then finally, the promise. And I would even say the great joy of this test concerning Jesus. So first, let's observe a few facts as we read through this text. The first thing to note is that chapter 4, the beginning of Chapter 4 in Matthew comes right after the end of Matthew chapter 3. Now, I know that that sounds extremely simplistic. Or maybe you think, finally, this guy's teaching on my level. I don't know, I don't know what you think of when I say that. But there is a reason for this. Jesus has just been announced as, revealed from heaven, as the true and rightful Son of God. He is about to embark on a ministry that is public. So this is public now. And there's going to be a lesson for us, not only in the nature of the temptation, but there's going to be a lesson in us in what Jesus is going to picture in his ministry, as well as what he's able to offer us. And so this test, I believe Matthew is saying, needs to come first, and it's not just Matthew. Mark records this, Luke records this, 
with great detail that following the public demonstration of Jesus and who he is, the first thing is a test of righteousness. Now, a couple other observations. Matthew tells us directly that he was not there by happenstance. He was led up by the Spirit. He was led up by the Spirit. This is to tell us that there is a purpose behind what is taking place. If you read Mark, the wording seems to indicate that maybe the Spirit spirit pressed him. If you read here, it makes it seem like the, the Spirit had led him, sort of like he was walking ahead of him. I don't know that it makes much of a difference except to say that there is a spiritual test here intended by God to prove something concerning the life and ministry of Jesus. There's a big question at the outset of this. And I want to be careful to speak about this. You may have noticed that though the text says in verse 1, in the version that we read anyway, that he was in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, I'm going to make use of the word test or trial. And I think there's good reason to do this. The first is that we can avoid the potential problem that comes with saying, perhaps you may be tempted to describe, not that he was tempted by the devil, but because he was led by the Spirit, you may say, remember when Jesus was tempted by God? Do you remember that when God intentionally led him into a place where he might sin and fail? And of course, we'd say to ourselves, well, that seems strange. Why would God tempt someone to sin? And because you're good students of the Bible, you would say to yourself, no, actually, he never does that. So I'm going to make use of the word test or trial, and I'm going to show you two reasons in Scripture why. The first is the principle that we should always interpret Scripture by Scripture. So if you have a question about the Bible, who do you ask? (laughs) That's like a who are you going to call thing, but who do you ask? You remember way back in the day, there was a a search engine called Ask Jeeves. Remember this? It lasted for about a month or something like that, maybe. And then Google took over everything. But if you had a question or curiosity about something, you could go ask Jeeves. I think a good principle for us in Scripture is you have a, a question concerning Scripture. The first place to go is to ask Scripture. So what are we avoiding or what could be a potential pitfall with the word temptation? Well, we could be unwittingly disobeying or ignoring James chapter 1. James chapter 1 verses 12 through 15 says this. James 1, 12 to 15. Blessed, happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. We're going to see that theme later in Jesus' life. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Two points I want to make from this. First, the word trial, test, and tempt are all used more or less interchangeably. So I'm not making a linguistic point. If someone says, oh, you know, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, don't actually them and jump down their throat. They're used interchangeably. However, the point of James is to tell us that God does not tempt anyone. So if we avoid or if we use tempt or if we use test or trial instead, it will help us to avoid this issue. The tempting, what temptation there was, and it was real for Jesus in the wilderness, came from his own humanness, his own desire, which we're going to see in verse 14 of James 1, and came from the tempter, the devil. The two places of temptation always come from our human fallenness and need and the accuser, never from God himself. So he's led by the Spirit, but not tempted by the Spirit. And then James, because it's such a frank book, goes on and says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. 
Sin that is fully grown brings forth death. So I'm going to use the word test throughout the morning to describe Jesus being led up into the wilderness. A few other things that will be a point of note for us to consider or think about later. It says that he fasted. Well, what is it about fasting? And I confess to you that fasting, meaning that he, he withstood this test without food, was one of the first times reading the Bible as a middle schooler that I remember giggling out loud. I had a chuckle. My mom always says, I had to chuckle. Never meet her. You listen, that's what she says. I had to chuckle because I remember as a middle schooler, nothing delighted me more than hearing, after he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, what wisdom does the Bible have for us? He was hungry. And 12-year-old me just thought that was the funniest follow-up to a thing ever. But rather than it just being kind of funny, the question becomes, what are we learning from this? Why is Jesus placed in in a position of hunger? Why is he fasting? More than that, why is it 40 days and 40 nights? What kind of numbers are being presented to us and is there meaning? These are going to be the kind of things that we would be observing as we're reading the Bible to consider. Finally, I want to note that these tests seem to have a particular pattern to them. They start with an if statement. If you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, Satan says twice. And then... Finally, he says, if you will fall down and worship me. These are questions of what could be, or perhaps what isn't. They are statements of doubt. And the way that those are followed up, what do we do with doubts? The way that they're followed up is that Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus is going to answer scripture by scripture, that's his principle, in order to withstand the test. So having observed all this, let's ask ourselves and attempt to ask the question, what is the nature of this trial that Jesus endures? What is the nature of it? How does it work? And I would say that the first thing to note about this is that when Satan wants to tempt a person, when temptation comes from him, who's called the accuser, that he is often going to direct temptation at the most fundamental needs of a person's life, the most fundamental defining aspects of what a person is. Sometimes temptations for us are absolutely raw in their simplicity. Why did you steal? Why did you yell? Why did you X, Y, Z? The answer for so many of us is something as simple as, I was hungry. Why are you so mean? I haven't eaten. We make funny coffee mugs about this kind of thing. We are, we are at a certain level base, fallen human beings that have desires that flow out of us that just seem uncontrollable to us. And for many of us, the temptation and the point of our sin is no less than the simple thing of you being like one of those balloon people in front of a tax store. I don't know. I just had to. The wind blew that way and I was hungry. I saw a pleasurable thing, had to have. There is that instinct in all of us, and if we refuse to acknowledge that, then we may be unwittingly vulnerable to sin in ways that we would not be if we were honest. And so Jesus, his humanity is mentioned here. He did all of this while he was hungry. 
anyone who's attempted to curb their eating in any sense, knows the ongoing mystery and sometimes the humiliating aspects of realizing that so much of what we grasp for at a human level of our desires is to fulfill something that we think that we need. I don't know what's worse, eating the fifth cookie when you know you shouldn't eat the fifth cookie. And I'm trying to think of any example where the fifth cookie's okay. Just probably not. I don't know what's worse, knowing the physical effect it'll have on you or knowing that deep down there's something that you're reaching for in a fifth cookie that you just wish would be satisfied but has not yet been satisfied. The question becomes at base levels, what is it that we desire that has not been granted to us in God's good use of the gifts that he's given? So Jesus is being tempted at the most basic level of human need. Could there be a more understandable reason to be cranky or sinning sin than simply, I needed this, it's natural. And if you know the piled up number of sins in the history of humanity that have gone to the category of, yeah, it was just totally natural, I just needed to, I just desired to, I just had to. I mean, I'm a hungry person after all. The reality is, is that for many of us, temptation will come exactly in the moment of our most fundamental base level needs. And our inability to be led by the Spirit and self-control over those aspects is one of the fundamental aspects of our fallenness. It is not a small thing that Jesus fasts for 40 days and for 40 nights. He experienced the reality of hunger. And then when Satan comes to him and says, why don't you just... Turn these stones into some sourdough and eat them. And he resists. Another way that the nature of temptation, it seems like the nature of a trial or test from Satan at the most fundamental aspects of his life attacks the one thing that has just been declared over him. If there is something that identifies this man, it is his sonship to the father. Remember the end of chapter three? Heaven opened, dove descended, everyone saw and heard a voice from heaven. Who is this? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And how does the temptation start? To doubt at the most fundamental level of Jesus' identity. If you are the son of God, not once, but twice. And I think that this can cut both ways. If you are overconfident and sure of and have been proud in your receiving of an identity or something from God, you may be tempted to use that identity not to be given back to God, but as a kind of self-serving idol. So it's as though the, t- the temptation would be something like this. Oh, so you're the son of God, huh? Why don't you show us? Oh, you have this gift from the Father, huh? Oh, supernatural you, huh? Well, why don't you just show us? And there is something in the human spirit with the good things that God has given us that loves to put them on display, not for God's glory, but for our own. Not for the benefit of others or for God's benefit, but for our own benefit. And so the temptation of the test here is to use that thing. Be that thing, but do it on your own terms. It's like uh, interacting with a second, second grader or something. Let's just say theoretically, you had a second grader. And they began to talk about races at school. And they became identified with the fact that they are fast. I'm fast. 
You ever talk to a second grader like this? I may have had one or two in my house at a given point in time. I'm fast. I don't know if you know about that, but I'm fast. I don't know when it's no longer socially appropriate to introduce yourself with how fast you are, but elementary kids, it's totally good. It's totally game. You're totally fine. I'm fast. And so as a parent, I may have been tempted at a time or two to say, wow, are you really fast? I bet you couldn't go get me that sandwich in the kitchen in less than 10 seconds. There's just no way. There's no way you could go get that shovel over there, you know, within 15 seconds at least. And what's happening there is that I am tempting the person to put on display into the world a show of what they are. And I believe that for all of us, the gifts that we've been given, the thing that we are, there's a constant temptation not to be humble about and to be grateful for or to properly use the gifts of God has given, leveraged for His glory and for the good of others, but rather to put ourselves on display, to reinforce and to affirm so that everybody knows who we are. In other words, it might not be enough that heaven opened and a dove descended and a voice came down. He needed to show everyone Himself. Oh, Satan, you want to see it? I am the Son of God. Watch this. Fakasha. <laughs> whatever white bread I had as a kid. Barely bread. You know what I mean? Or like, what, he could have said it just to put it on display and make himself feel bigger or belonging or real. Many of us in our pride are tempted at that point. Remember I said though that it cuts both ways? There's also a spirit of doubt in here. If you are the son of God, It may be that Jesus would have been tempted to think to himself something like this. Don't I deserve this? Why am I out in the wilderness with no food? Why am I hungry? I was just in the water. Didn't God say that I'm his son? He's pleased with me. If he's pleased with me, why am I suffering like this? Doesn't his plan for my sonship include all the bread that I need? If I am, then, and then you just fill in the blank of all the things you either deserve or you must have, and a spirit of doubt can come. And so many of us, because we have not received the gift of rest in Christ, can often strive out of a sense of a need to belong or to prove to ourselves that nagging doubt that we don't quite measure up. Or worse than that, that the things that we deserve are not being accomplished in our timing so everyone must see that we were not righteous or good enough. So Satan tempts at the very place the fundamental identity of Jesus. How we define who we are, all the good things that God has implanted in us, we must be very careful with. It's why scripture says, be careful about your idols, because what you set up as an idol, what, is you, what you set up as the defining factor of this is the thing that makes me who I, are, I am, it's what I need. You may be being honest, but if you've made it a God, it will demand obedience. See, that's the funny thing. We will follow our gods, period. And the question here is, and what Jesus is proving again and again and again is that he knows the good gifts of bread. He knows the good gifts of sonship. He knows the good gifts of belonging and blessing and he's even power as a son, but he knows that they are not ultimate. 
And so he does not need to obey them. There's another way that temptation works. I believe it's the subtle, incepting idea from the very beginning in the garden. What does the tempter say to Eve when he comes to her? Did God really say? Did God really say? Or maybe in this case, because Satan has he's changed his strategy slightly, he asks the question, did God really say? And this time, he maybe he knows that Jesus is going to be sharper. He just comes straight with the words. This is what God said. But it's used in an odd way. Isn't it kind of strange that Satan is a Bible expert? Ever think about that? You know the people with the wrong motives and the wrong application and actually an intent to harm or to disobey God can know the Bible really, really, really well? That's an amazing fact. It turns out that just filling your head with the Bible is not enough. It's filling your head with the Bible and letting it get to your heart to understand the desires of the God who wrote the Scriptures. So his tactic is slightly different from a different angle, but it's the same question. Did God really say, can you trust his word? In this case, the fact that Satan was a Bible expert made it more dangerous. He took passages of scripture and he maligned them and he twisted them and he used them to support whatever desire would have been, he believed whatever desire would have been most dominant in Jesus' heart, the more dangerous thing than simply having a heart on the loose, disconnected from God's rule and reign, is to have a heart on the loose, disconnected from God's rule and the reign, pseudo-supported by Bible verses. And so, Jesus needed to respond not only with faith, but to test Scripture against Scripture and to realize that the heart of what is being said does not match the heart of Scripture. Eve failed this test. Did God really say? And ultimately, maybe what's being installed there underneath this, this temptation is this question, is God really good? Are you sure? Are you sure this whole garden thing, but withholding the tree, isn't really evidence that God's not trustworthy, probably not very good, and that you're being held out on? Isn't that essentially what Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to say? Jesus, just take this into your own hands. Here's the thing. God led you into this wilderness. You're starving. You've got all the power in the world. It's only right that you use it. In fact, didn't he say stuff like this? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just saying your life could be better. Just take control. And what Jesus has to say in that moment of temptation is to say something like this. No, my Father is good. And He withholds no good thing from those who love Him. The reality is is that Jesus finds the ultimate blessing, the true happiness. Remember James chapter 1, it said, Blessed is the one who endures with patience these trials. Blessed, that word means happy. And at the end of Matthew 4, 11, we just read it, the devil leaves him. Behold, angels come and are ministering to him. This is an idea of a, of a joyful reunion, of Jesus receiving in due time the blessing of God's presence and his care and concern. 
The temptation at the heart of all of us is that we've gotten just a glimpse or a glimmer of a fake version of some blessing that God truly intends to give. But we won't let him give it in his timing or in his measure or in his way. So we grasp. So we take. So we withhold. And this, I believe, is the nature of the test for sin. So what is the meaning of Jesus going through this? The meaning of Jesus going through this is at least twofold. One, he is pictured as a true and better Israel. Do you remember a time significantly in the Bible where there was testing and trial and temptation in a wilderness? Does it remind you of anything? Is the number 40 call to mind something? Matthew is putting Jesus squarely into a place where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Here's the funny thing. Israel is brought into the wilderness for 40 years. They had food and grumbled and sinned. Jesus fasts and goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He has no food and he remains faithful. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. The whole commandment that I command you today, you should be careful to do. You may live and multiply. Go in and possess the land the Lord swore to your fathers. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. It's not an understatement to say that in a test of humility and keeping of commandments over those 40 years, Israel failed. Again and again and again, they could not overcome the base desires of their hearts, the constant doubts that God had led them astray, that they deserved better, that they had previously had better, and that substitute joys are what they really needed. Jesus is a true and a better Israel. He represents collectively all of the people of God who is tested in the wilderness and yet does not grumble and does not complain but remains faithful. Second, if Jesus is collectively a picture of faithfulness, he's also individually a picture of faithfulness. He is pictured throughout Scripture as a second Adam. And where the first parents failed in disobedience when tempted by the devil, Jesus will remain faithful. Romans chapter 5, which is a whole chapter on this theme. If you wanted to read it, it's excellent. Verses 18 and 19 of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus is that second man, the individual who walks in perfect obedience where Adam and Eve failed. And this leads us, I think, to the great promise of this test, the great joy of the test. What Jesus must do before he enacts all of his miracles, before he teaches prophetically, before he challenges the authorities and stands up to them and throws down the religious order, before all of these things, in fact, before he even dies for the forgiveness of our sins to cover the punishment due us, he must demonstrate 
the righteous life that you and I need as much as we need forgiveness. You see, here's the promise of this text. It is the gospel in fullness that includes a text like this, not just the cross. Why did Jesus live a whole life? Why all these decades? Why Matthew chapter 4? Why not? You know, are you the kind of person who just wants the, the good stuff in a story? It's like, oh, it's a dialogue again. Just give me the action. Why not? Jesus was born as a man. Miraculous, but whatever. As a man, marches straight to the cross, takes all the sins upon himself. He's in and out in a weekend. Just back to heaven. Because it's not just forgiveness that we need. One day you will be faced with a need for utter righteousness beyond belief. You cannot be in the presence of God except that you are as perfect as he is perfect. Be perfect as our Father is perfect, Jesus says. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom. So this is gospel made more full. Or gospel made good at all. If Jesus had only died a substitutionary death to forgive your sins, that would have been some good news. If I said to you, I have good news for you, you can come to Jesus and confess your sins and everything you've done in your past will be wiped away. My guess is that all of you have a history of regrets, of pain, of difficulty in your mind. You'd say to yourself, I'd like to be forgiven of that. Forgiveness is great. However, what if I said to you, all right, great, you're forgiven up till this moment. Now, for every second of the rest of your life, just live perfectly and you got a shot. From here on out, just don't ever sin again. It's that simple, dummy. I wouldn't say dummy to you, to me. You know what I'm saying. Is that good news? That's terrifying news. You might say to yourself, I'm never going to leave the room. Never going to leave the room. I just, I, this isn't going to work. In fact, the moment you said I was forgiven my sins, I was proud of the fact that I was forgiven and my other guy wasn't. So do I need to be forgiven again? Can this keep going? Is this going to be an endless pit? It's not good news, it's anxiety, and it's inevitable failure in a performance test. But Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. And Jesus, who calls us his friends if we would have him, says, I will not only take your sin, but I'll give you my righteousness. I will pass the test that you fail again and again and again and again. I'll live the life that you should have lived but couldn't. And one day when you stand before the Father, He's going to look and He's going to see not only your sins forgiven, but He's going to see in me perfect, spotless, beloved righteousness. And so because you're in Christ, and don't just have your sins forgiven, but because you're in Christ, you have your sins forgiven, and you have perfect righteousness to stand before the Father. That's the goodness of the gospel. It's gospel made more gospelly. It's good news made gooder. It's the thing that carries you all the way through to the end. And if you're humbled and you understand the reality of your fallen nature, then you'll say to yourself, I not only need to be forgiven, but I need to be made new and given a righteousness that's not my own. Smart people in Bible history have called this alien righteousness. Because doesn't it feel like that? What would it be like to have perfect righteousness? Well, I'd have to be like some sort of alien, I guess. Jesus offers you something that amazing in himself. So Matthew chapter 4 teaches us a thing or two about our temptation. I hope we've learned. It shows us a beautiful picture of the weaving of the Bible in history. But more than that, it gives us a reason to rejoice in the Son of God who not only forgives, but has given us his spotless record.